0: This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for an interview with Bruce Durham, the CEO and director of York Harbor Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol YORK and in the U.S. on the OTC is Y-O-R-K-F. York Harbor Metals is an exploration and development company focused on the York Harbor Copper-Zinc Silver Project, a past-producing mine located approximately 27 kilometers from Corner Brook, Newfoundland. The company has core drilled approximately 19,260 meters since July of 2021 to confirm and extend the footprint of a high-grade copper-zinc mineralization within the main mine area. York Harbor plans to continue core drilling to test known volcanogenic massive sulfide targets within the expanded, main mine area. Mr. Durham is a geologist with more than 40 years in the junior resource industry, including mandates in corporate management, project development, and exploration project management. Bruce, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Thanks, so. Alex, for having us. Bruce, if you don't mind, since this is the first time we're bringing New York Harbor to the attention of our audience, give us an overview of the company, please.
1: York Harbor's got a project on the western coast of Newfoundland in Canada that's that's very much an old project that is being reinvigorated, partly because we've got a lot more technology that we can apply to the project. And so the guys who were involved with the company before I was there were starting to put together a a very nice land package on a project that was first mined in the 1800s. And at that time, they were actually burrowing into the side of the mountain and pulling out high-grade copper ore and sticking that in barrels and shipping it to England for processing. Over the the last hundred years or more, people have looked at it a couple of different times and they've taken a stab at going underground, trying to establish underground reserves, but nobody's taken a modern approach to the project. And so we've gone in and not only have we been able to expand on the known mineralization, but more recently we've been able to identify three or four other really promising looking targets around the property that people hadn't applied proper geophysics to understand. And so it's very much about critical elements, copper and zinc, and going in and using new technology to try to identify new areas of mineralization. One of the things that this project has in Spades is really good infrastructure. So it's located right on the coast, access to seawater. It's got a power line that goes through. It's got a highway that goes through. It's close to a community. And so we're able to keep our exploration costs down. And certainly if we were to get to the stage of doing a mining project, all of this logistical infrastructure certainly helps with with the cost structure for both the capital and for operating costs.
0: The Newfoundland coastline is certainly beautiful. And I'm wondering, I'm asking a question that perhaps an environmentalist who would be listening to this broadcast may ask you, what about the disturbing the coastline and the beauty of the area and the government of Newfoundland. Is everybody in sync with getting this copper out of the ground ultimately? Well,
1: the province of Newfoundland has become quite an exploration address, and I'm not sure if your listeners are following what's going on with a company called Newfound Gold or the Maritime Valentine Gold Deposit. But these are two areas that have attracted hundreds of millions of dollars in exploration funding just in the recent years. And at this point, much of Newfoundland is actually staked one way or the other for mineral deposits. So much of the province was actually logged off historically. So there are certain areas and certainly there are some large parks and it is a beautiful coastline, but they've got so much coastline that it's not something that people get overly concerned about. And certainly close to the project that we're working on, there's fishing and mining and forestry and everything all going on at the same time. So um, I don't see that as a big risk at this point, Alice.
0: A fair point. And thank you very much for answering that question. Many companies build their story, build their legacy, build their projects with just maybe one half of 1% of copper in the ground. I've seen some samples here on your website on the presentation, which is available to to everybody. All you have to do is log into yorkharbormetals.com. You have some 8% intersects. 4% intersects, 2% intersects. That's pretty standard, isn't
1: it? We're really blessed with high grade, and I think that's why this was mined historically all the way back to the 1800s. And even in our most recent press release, um, which was on January the 24th, but on this project on January the 24th, we had a 4.7% copper assay over 8.9 meters, which is a really good intersection. And in addition to that, that intersection had 10% zinc mineralization. So these are very, very high grade numbers. This would be a deposit that would be mined by underground methods. It's rather steep and, and not something that you would do a large open pit on, but something you would mine for high grade. And so the, the really the joy of this project is that you could go underground, mine high grade, and then you can ship that to an existing mill facility, or you could put that high grade at using technology such as ore sorting and make a very high grade coarse concentrate and ship that off for uh, for processing. So this has got all the benefits of high grade. And I've been at this business for over 40 years now, and I can tell you that Grade makes up for a lot of mistakes, and certainly you're covered in up markets and down markets if you've got a grade that you can actually move around a bit to support your project in, in leaner times.
0: So the infrastructure over there in Newfoundland supports really any kind of grade, but you just happen to have high grades, so it should be fairly fairly economic, correct? The economic
1: cutoff on this uh, material is going to be pretty low. So anything I would say, anything that's going to be over about one or one and a half percent copper is going to be economic provided. There's enough of it there. I've been involved in mineral exploration for over 40 years now. I've been involved in at least six or eight projects now that have gone from uh, initial exploration projects to actually producing mines. And the one thing that, that we find is you have to go through kind of a checklist of items that make a project really good. And when I looked at this project and before I got involved and and then I took over as the CEO in November, this one ticks all of the boxes on my list of about 10 things that I looked for in a project. Certainly infrastructure, political environment, lack of a sensitive environmental situation, all of those things are on my list. And this one ticks the box that is high grade. I really like to see high grade. The only one that we haven't ticked and that will be the final box in this project is, you know, what is the size and how much tonnage
0: can we outline? What are we going to see for the next six months here with the York Harbor project? We're going
1: to announce very shortly, we've already signed a a new drill contract. So we've announced most of our phase four drill results uh, that included a drill hole that had 8.97 meters of 4.7 copper and 10% zinc in kind of an area that we thought had been mined out and we know there's room to find more mineralization there. So we're going to start with a, a project here in the next couple of weeks where we're going back drilling. We're well funded, and we'll go back drilling not only around the, just the mine site, but we've identified several other targets using what we call induced polarization surveying. So we've got areas that we're going to go and test well away from the known mineralization. So this is the really exciting part for grassroots exploration: is to not only find areas around an old mine, or working around the existing head frame, but actually to go find new areas of mineralization. So this is a pretty exciting time for us, for sure. So we'll drill over the next couple of months. And if we find more and more mineralization, we'll just keep drilling. So over the next six months, this is going to be all about drilling and finding new areas of mineralization.
0: So the York Harbor project is not the only project you have in Canada. Is that correct?
1: You know, Ellis, we got looking around the western side of Newfoundland, and and this includes uh, our QP, Doug Blanchflower, who I've got a lot of respect for. And you know, we got looking around for other things that we might in the same area, and we came across a project called the Bottom Brook Rare Earth Project. We announced that acquisition in December, closed that acquisition at the end of January. And as we're going through this drilling program on the main York Harbor property, we're also going to be gearing up to do a, an initial exploration project on the Bottom Brook Rare Earth Project. Rare Earths are a bit unusual, uh, they're not as rare maybe as people think, but they're rare to find new discoveries or new areas of mineralization that are close to excellent logistics. So, the Rare Earth Project. Is literally 27 kilometers from an existing port facility. It's got power lines through it. It's got the Trans Canada Highway going through it. And this is a project where some prospectors, the infamous prospectors from Newfoundland, actually found rare earth mineralization more than a decade ago. And they've been working away and sitting on it and trying to decide what to do with it. We ended up doing a deal with them. And this project has grades that are up to 20% rare earths, which is almost unheard of. And large areas that have never been explored, places where they've found boulders that they haven't sourced yet, places where they've actually found mineralization with really good grades that... uh, no one's even ever done a trench on, let alone drill the hole into. So uh, we're really excited about that one. So that'll be a follow-up project coming uh, as we progress with the drilling on the on the main York Harbor based metal project.
0: Bruce, tell us about the share structure of the company. The company's
1: got around sixty-six million shares out, if I'm not mistaken. We've got some very strong shareholders. We think that two of the main shareholders that we have are Blair Naughty and, and his group, and then we've got a significant shareholding by the original prospectors we obtained the York Harbor project from, and then from the Bottom Brook Project Acquisition, we've got strong shareholders there as well. And we'd like to brag that we've got Eric Sprott, you know, one of our mining billionaires, as one of our shareholders. So he's got a personal relationship with some of the principals. We've got you know, strong shareholders. The insiders probably own about 25% of the company and then strategic shareholders like Eric Sprott. And a couple of others own about 15. So the insider and strategics own about 40% of the the company.
0: Well, you can certainly brag about Eric Sprott all you want. He's a great man and he's invested in some fantastic projects. And it says a lot that he's invested in New York Harbor. Bruce, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you today. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more updates in the future.
1: Thanks very much, Alex.
0: I've been speaking with Bruce Durham, the CEO and director of York Harbor Metals, Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol Y O R K and in the US on the OTC as Y O R K F. Find them on the web at YorkHarborMetals.com subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report at ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Alicia Patterson, Director of Corporate Communications for Latin Metals Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMS and in the US on the OTC as LMSQF. Latin Metals is a mineral exploration company acquiring a diversified portfolio of assets in South America, primarily Argentina and Peru. The company operates with a prospect generator model, focusing on the acquisition of prospective exploration properties at minimum cost, completing initial evaluation through cost-effective exploration to establish drill targets, and ultimately securing joint venture partners to fund drilling and advanced exploration. Shareholders gain exposure to the upside of a significant discovery without the dilution associated with funding the highest risk drill-based exploration. Latin Metals has recently concluded deals to option out exploration properties to a wholly owned subsidiary of Anglo Gold Ashanti a wholly owned subsidiary of Barrick Gold Corporation and Libero Copper. Alicia, welcome back to the program. Nice to visit with you today.
2: Thank you for having me back, Ellis. I appreciate it.
0: It was great to see you in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago for the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. It was so busy there. I've never seen that particular venue. So packed with investors and people that are just interested in the sector right now and interested in copper. You
2: know what I have to say? It's really nice to see people interested in mining again and interested in copper it is the way of the future copper people don't know but copper is in that whole base metal green energy clean energy you need copper for batteries and electric vehicles and everything crazy how much you need copper for a release went out of this week and it was really exciting it was our tilo copper project in peru we're in Peru and Argentina. So this one is our Tilo copper project. And we actually returned rock sampling of 1.3% copper.
0: That is very, very nice. Great. I saw that.
2: And it's really
0: impressive. You know, there's projects that turn into mines for a lot less. And
2: we literally just started exploration recently. This is like first time boots on the ground kind of thing. And we've done the first exploration program on this project. Nothing has done before this. We've done the geochemical sampling of the soils and we've taken about 253 samples to date.
0: Are there any partners with this particular property or is this all you for the time being?
2: We're at 100% owned by us. It's about 2,000 hectares. What we do as a prospect generator, we do the initial exploration, a surface exploration, and then we look for partners. Like in our other more advanced ones, Upwest, a Copper Project, crew, and Latcha. Latcha, it has a drill permit on it. So we're currently looking for a partner for that, that they would do the partner-funded drilling. And then we also uh, had a bit of a, an update with Alquist and that we're doing a magnetic geophysical survey that has started with that. So, you know, and that's another one that's looking to be optioned out as well because they're further ahead.
0: One of the things I like about your company is your relatively tight share structure and the fact that you're dealing really with your JV partners, Anglo Asante. A major, and also with Barrick Gold and then the industrious Libera Copper. You're working with people who have the capital and the the crew and the manpower and the woman power. You're dealing with people who have the crew to take these projects forward.
2: Yeah, we, we are. And you know, the thing is what I have to say about investors and people that are listening to uh, this podcast is that you don't realize how much due diligence it goes and with the technical teams in Theric or Angle Gold or even Liberholth. They have the know-how, the resource, and experience, so they don't partner with just any company. They're not a small, a small thing. they They're looking for things that have have a substantial program drilling. So they're looking for they're looking for the next big discovery. So that's something really interesting that we're the initial exploration for that. And then we pass off these projects, but we even have a great one in Argentina, the Matador that we just staked as well. And we announced that one being in January. So there's a lot of things happening with us that we're doing and people are looking to see what we are doing. And I think you'll see in the future, we'll have people looking at our projects and acquiring them especially with Blatcha and Atlas, where they are right now.
0: Because we're looking for partners. And I'm sure you will find one. Alicia, thank you so much for joining me today on the program, it's always great to chat with you.
2: And thank you very much for having me on. I can't wait to tell you more things happening at uh, Latin Metals in the near future.
0: I've been speaking with Alicia Patterson, Director of Corporate Communications for Latin Metals Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as LMS, and in the US on the OTC as LMSQF. Go to the company's website, latin-metals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment of the Ellis Martin Report, I speak with Dr. Paul Wessels, the President and CEO of Western Copper and Gold Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange as WRN. Western Copper and Gold Corporation is developing the Casino Project, Canada's premier copper gold mine in the Yukon Territory and one of the most economic greenfield copper gold mining projects in the world. The Casino Project hosts approximately 7.6 billion pounds of copper as well as 14.5 million ounces of gold, one of the largest projects of its kind, again held by a junior mining company in the world. Major mining operator Rio Tinto Canada made a $25.6 million strategic investment to advance the company's casino project in the Yukon just last year. Paul, welcome back to the program. It's great to hang out with you today.
3: It's always great to see you, Ellis.
0: We just visited recently at the Yukon Mining Alliance's booth at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. I have to tell you, I've never seen that conference hall at the convention center and that particular conference so packed with people.
3: You know, it was good. And you know what was exciting for me? For those of you that aren't familiar, it's a two-day conference. It's a Sunday and it's a Monday. On the Sunday, as you can imagine, it's more of a retail crowd, more generalist investors, and that was the day when it was really, really packed, was on the Sunday. People are excited about mining stocks, they're excited about gold, excited about critical minerals, which is where my passion is with our casino project. They see tremendous value in junior mining equities, and it was a good time.
0: Sometimes when I think of Western Copper and Gold, most of the time, I think of Copper first because it's first in the name of your company, but you've got quite a supply or stash, as we used to say in the 70s, of gold, and... I think you're positioned for either market this year very nicely.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, our headline numbers are a little under 11 billion pounds of copper, 21 million ounces of gold. And to put that into perspective, as a copper gold asset, it is the fifth largest copper gold asset controlled by junior mining company. Just the gold. This is not counting the copper, not counting molybdenum and silver. Just the gold. It's the eighth largest gold deposit controlled by junior mining company with twenty one million ounces of gold. So we definitely love to see gold here over nineteen hundred. It's moving our share price up as you would expect, but you know still lots of value there.
0: Speaking of value and value to the community, it was in September when I had the pleasure and privilege of interviewing who is now the Premier of the Yukon Territory, Ranj Pillay, and we were discussing. I had asked him questions about the economic impact of mining on not just the Yukon, but Canada. And he was quite passionate about that economic impact for the Yukon and again across Canada. And he's been involved in it. And that sort of feeds into the news release that you have out today. You completed an updated study on the potential economic impact of the development of your wholly owned casino. Copper Gold Project, which I've been on. And the numbers are just astounding for the Yukon and for Canada. There's a lot of numbers
3: here. I think they're all important. So let's talk about it. There are a lot of numbers. Our Casino Copper Gold Project is i mean let's just start let's talk just for a sec about critical minerals it is the largest critical minerals project in canada so that gives you an idea and you know critical minerals that's the copper that's the molybdenum that's in the project that doesn't even count the gold the gold part makes it even bigger so this is the construction the operation over the life of mine closure all of that adds 44.3 billion dollars to the gdp of canada this is why we pursue mining you know i've been in the mining industry my whole life this is why I, i get really excited about projects like what we have at Casino because they're big. They really move the needle. And this is an exciting project for Western copper and gold shareholders. It's an exciting project for the Yukon. It's an exciting project for Canada. It's significant in terms of the economic impact. But I mean, sure, everybody likes money. But I think the other thing that's important that people understand is how this helps develop the territory. One of the other really exciting things that came out, actually, the week you were up here, was this tweet, actually, that came from the Minister of Energy, Mines, and Resources around the connection of the British Columbia and Yukon power grids. When you have a project the size of casino in a jurisdiction such as the Yukon, producing this sort of economic impact, you wanna facilitate that happening. So the government in 2017 announced that they would build a number of roads. One of those is the road to our casino project. They just announced with this tweet that they're looking at connecting the BC and Yukon grids. It's a long ways away, but again, this is something that would really benefit the Yukon, really benefit our project really add to the green credentials of everything. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the, it's not just the economic impact, it's the jobs, of course. The jobs number is 132,000 full-time equivalent positions that are created. They're big numbers, but this is sort of typical for a project of this magnitude.
0: What's really important is the landscape of the Yukon with regard to the native people that live there, the rest of Canada folks that may be living there. I was asking the premier back in September about what the Yukon might look like with continually developing mine production there. And now with with bringing ultimately the casino project on board, I would think that we would have a center in either Whitehorse or Dawson or throughout the territory where the rest of Canada may just want to come and work and produce and
3: provide energy and minerals for the rest of the world. Preaching to the choir with you, Alice, there's a couple of things about the Yukon. First of all, we're talking here about the casino project, immense potential, but the Yukon already has, there's lots of work up there. I believe It's actually had the lowest unemployment in Canada for the past five years, and it's a great place to be. I'm excited by the casino project because I think what it does is it provides really good jobs and really long-term jobs. I mean, we're talking about a project here that from, well, actually including the construction period, not including closure, but including the construction period, it has over 30 years of life. So we were actually talking earlier, actually had a board meeting this morning, and we were talking about, well, what what are you guys doing in the community? and we're talking about, and we're doing lots of things in the small communities we impact and Whitehorse and that. And the point came up is, is, yeah, you know, you should be talking to the 10-year-olds and the 5-year-olds because they'll be working at this mine. This is a long-life mine. It'll be the 10-year-olds' kids that are working in this mine. I really feel like it's an important asset to the Yukon and an important asset to Canada. And we've been developing it. We're in the thick of permitting right now. We're developing it very carefully. Fortunately, not quite as quickly either as I'd like to, but it's being moved forward in a very measured way because it's such great value and it's such an asset to the country of Canada. And one of the other things, and I'm just going to come back and talk a bit more about critical minerals. This is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. There's an article that came out a couple of days ago where the chair or president of the International Energy Association came to Canada and said, look, Canada needs to do its part. The U.S. needs to do its part. Countries that have stable governments need to do their part to supply the minerals and metals that we need to go through the energy transition that we're going through moving forward. And this is a perfect example of Casino Project, like I said, one of the largest critical mineral mines, the largest critical minerals project in Canada. And it's important that this gets developed, not just for the people of the Yukon and Canada, but just to get that supply of copper out of countries like Canada that have good, stable governments, take environmental, social responsibilities seriously. And that's exactly what we're doing at Western Copper and Gold.
0: You mentioned that certain things are taking time. I recognize that, but I have to tell you, knowing you for about seven or eight years now, like I have, I've never seen things move so fast in one particular area in Canada, a large area than anywhere else in the country.
3: No, it's it's interesting because, yeah, when we first met seven years ago, it was all about the potential. Oh, you know, the potential, of the Yukon. the potential is so great. I mean, now it's it's not about the potential, it's about what's happening. I mean, you've got the Eagle Gold project up and running. You've got the Kudzakaya, which is, it's a private company, BMC Minerals, but it's through permitting and they're gonna start construction pretty quickly. Got lots of excitement around our casino project just because of the size of it. Like I talked about, I mean, I can't have size enough. I'm really excited about this power grid interconnect. All these things are happening in the Yukon, And so it's happening, it's not the potential it's happening in the Yukon. And that's exciting. That's exciting.
0: You're not doing this on your own. It's always great to have a partner with deep pockets like Rio Tinto.
3: Yeah, no. Rio made a strategic investment in the company a little over 18 months ago. They just renewed in November of last year. The agreement that we have with them, it gives them one more year. It was part of the original agreement that we had with them. And really, it's a very simple agreement that we have with Rio. The idea is that we would spend, well, now it'll be two and a half years working with them. We've been working hand in hand with them over the the past year and a half you know another year here to go to really help them dot every i and cross every t and this is the big companies they these big investments and big companies they got to be very careful fair enough and we're one and a half years through they really like what they see or else why would they have extended the agreement so that's been extended i actually talked to them this week we're going through committees and looking at optimizations and all these things. But I mean, at the end of the day, this is, it's almost a once in a lifetime project that we have up here in Casino. Large copper gold project located in Canada. Great, as we talked about this, this whole conversation. Great government support. Yeah, yeah, the government likes us. No, no, no. The government's helping, it's building a road to the mine. The government is seriously looking at connecting the grids, which will significantly improve the project. First Nation relationships that are really advanced and, you know, First Nations that are very supportive of this. So we'll see where things, Things will go with Rio, but I'm feeling very positive about it.
0: Well, Paul, it's always great to catch up with you. I'd like to disclose to our audience that I am a shareholder and you are a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. We are also friends, and we wouldn't be friends if we didn't like each other and respect what we both do for a living. And I have a lot of respect for your project and your helmsmanship over the years, Paul. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program.
3: You know what, Ellis, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and happy that we'll be talking probably in a couple more months here and with hopefully some exciting news.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Paul Wessels, the president and CEO of Western Copper and Gold Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange and the Toronto Stock Exchange as WRN. Go to the company's website, westerncoppercorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm an investor with Western Copper and Gold Corporation. I'm Ellis Martin. Do join me now for a conversation with my friend, Byron King. Byron is the editor of Whiskey and Gunpowder at Agora Financial, an editor with Jim Rickards Gold Speculator. He's a Harvard-educated geologist and holds an advanced degree from the U.S. Naval War College. He served as an advisor to the U.S. Department of Defense as a retired U.S. Navy officer and pilot. His work as a mining analyst, investor, and writer has taken him to all 50 states and seven continents. Most recently, Byron and I were a guest of the Yukon Mining Alliance and Yukon Government, where we toured several development stage mining projects as well as producing copper and gold mines. Byron, welcome to the program. Nice to see you today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you, Ellis. Thank you. The last time we saw each other was at the tail end of June up in the Yukon, the Yukon territory, and you and I were touring uh, gold and copper properties and mines. And the price of gold, I believe on July 1st was around somewhere close to 1800, 1830 in that area. Right. And we're just about $30 above that right now, give or take. So really not much has happened in the market, except for, you know there's been some volatility. I thought we were going to go parabolic for a while with gold, but we haven't. We've settled back down. Every time it seems like It wants to go parabolic, there is a correction of
4: sorts. We stay at a level that seems to be, I don't know, stagnant. What's your opinion? Well, we we spent the summer watching gold prices go up as interest rates rose as well. And then not too long ago, we gave a lot of those gains back into the market. But it doesn't mean that there are not a lot of investable ideas out in the gold space and the copper space and the mining space in general. I think you want to be sanguine that there's protection underneath these prices because just fundamental scarcity of what's going on out in the world the, the industrial metals especially copper as we mentioned but so many others you know nickel and cobalt and various others and the gold is just it's just a long-term holding the biggest buyers at the end of 2022 last year were central banks so what do they know they're bulking up their books with real live gold so they must know something
0: they've been doing that for a while too it really hasn't trickled down or
4: translated into movement with the equities that market is still flat in my opinion you may feel differently well, it's a stock picker's market. And when we talk about equities, you know, you've got your big gold miners, your intermediates and your small sort of explore cos and development cos and things like that. The big miners are the ones that get the Wall Street attention because they're safe enough to invest in, and they will move when the price of gold moves. But they're very risk averse as well. They're in the gold business, but they're really banks. They're banks that supply money to project. They generate a lot of cash by selling gold. They act a lot more like banks than they do like mining companies. The intermediate guys have done very well. We've seen a lot of nice moves in those. They're growing. And then on the exploration side, again, it's a stock pickers market. It really depends on the company, the asset, the people. You can see things that just absolutely explode upward. A very small company that you and I looked at last June up in the Yukon was Snowline. Remember Snowline? Really nice people, really interesting project, really an interesting play, except it's out in the middle of nowhere on the top of a mountain. There's no roads, no power line, no anything. They went out there, but they were pulling some pretty interesting samples high-grade gold over the summer, and their share price rocketed upwards to a level that's pretty high right now. I'm not recommending that you buy in right now. because It's had a way heck of a ride, but that tells you what some good news can do to a small company. What's your strategy
0: then? Because I don't think my strategy personally is that good. It's okay. Probably as good or as bad as anyone else's, maybe with the exception of yours and a few others that are just super smart and extremely knowledgeable in this sector. I'm just a mere journalist, but how have you been doing in
4: the market in general with regard to, let's just stay on the juniors for a moment, since you mentioned Snowline. Well, in the junior space, I have a Big long list of companies that I'm familiar with. I know the names, I understand the asset. I've met a lot of the management People. The fact that we went to the Yukon last summer is representative of how I do things. I mean, I want to go out into the field, kick the rocks. I mean, I want to see the project. I want to meet the geologists, the engineers. I want to hold the core in my hand the, in the core shack and take a look. You can never know everything and you can never know enough. but I stick with companies that I know very well the people, the asset, what have you, which doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of great other companies out there. It just means that I can't cover everything. There's hundreds of names and a couple of dozen of them are really, really good. And a few of them are going to be those proverbial 20, 30, 40 baggers. We hope we find them. So you're familiar with the management of almost all of the companies that you invest in? Would that be a correct assertion? Oh, absolutely. I almost never would buy a share in a company that I hadn't looked at hard, I might miss some of the upside because, okay, that's great, it's moving, but I don't know these people. I don't know this asset. I need to learn more. If it's moving, well, then I better learn more fast. I almost never just sort of, oh, hey, here's a hot stock. Team. I almost never buy into something like that because experience, 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 you know. So you have to meet people face-to-face. Zoom isn't even good enough, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, I'd like to meet the face-to-face obviously for the last couple of years in COVID, talk with them on the phone or the Zoom or whatever. I've been around long enough that a lot of projects are in places that I know because I've been there. I mean, I might not have been to that specific locale in that county or that municipality. I know the geological area, I mean, just from my own geology background. I mean, I've, I've been up and down the spine of the U.S. Rocky Mountains, the Canadian Rockies been down into Mexico. So when somebody says, oh, I've got this project in you know, Sonora, Mexico, I was like, oh, no, okay, where is it? I mean, maybe I can't get down there, but I mean, I've been around, I get a feel for it. And then that helps me kind of grade the pitch so to speak umpire of the pitch are they throwing smoke at me or or is this a nice fastball right over the plate that we can take a swing at you know when you
0: met scott Burdall and stephanie
4: hansen last
0: summer in the yukon did you Get a feeling then that that stock might be, or that company,
4: I should say, might be worth investing in. Did you take action then? You know, every now and then there's one that you miss. I liked them. I was impressed with the people. I liked the idea. And this is where sort of my own kind of exploration bias kind of overwhelmed me here. I said to myself, this is a really interesting project and I'm going to keep an eye on it. I'll put it in my hip pocket. I did not come back and immediately write it all up. I didn't do that. And by the time I sort of looked at it again, it was off the races with this stock and it moved for good reasons i mean they were finding high grade samples they had a very very strong exploration program over the summer and they went from being you know one of these junior explore codes in the middle of the Yukon to being this 350 million dollar market cap company i was like whoa i'm always impressed with good companies i don't like to chase momentum you can't swing at every pitch and you (laughs) what else can i say may have copen that i that i didn't do more sooner other people did other people did, obviously. Well, same here. And, uh, you know, let me throw a great bear and Silvercrest at you a few years back. Did you get in on that gravy train? Great bear, I was impressed with pretty early on. I liked the management. I liked the asset. I understood that Red Lake District fairly well. I'd been there a couple of times, not their specific acreage, but I did have a feel for what was going on there. I was not the earliest guy to jump on the bus, but I got on the bus, got a pretty good ride on it. And then when you're dealing with a small company like that, it's a story, it's got momentum, whatever. And so you ride it a ways. And then along the way, you sell off a few things just to kind of, you know, take some of the money back, get your money off the table, and then you hang yeah. on and then, hey, what do you know? They got bought out. So Silvercrest, personally, I never put any money into it, but I talked about it with people. Did didn't say anything bad about it. I said good things about it. You can only invest in so many things. There's only so much you can really look at and keep your brain wrapped around. Well, investing in so many things, as you put it, or just
0: a few things, whereas I do actually, and then taking some losses, it sort of discourages you, or it can discourage you from investing in, let's say, companies like Snowline or even Silvercrest
4: or Great Bear when they come along, because you've just, as a gold bug, you've just had enough. You know, enough abuse. Everybody reaches that sort of. I don't want to call it the capitulation point. The market capitulates when, you know, you can't give these things away. They're just selling at dirtball prices and the volume is terrible. And, you know, you become the market when you go in there and just buy a five-cent share and you buy, you know, you just for the heck of it you buy a couple thousand shares just to make a market in it. That's actually when you do want to be buying some of these things. If you know the people and you know the asset, uh, a lot of these companies, the share structure is that you know management owns a big whack. There might be some of the founder family and friends that own a big whack of shares. Might be some institution, you know, a Sprott or an Eric Sprott owns a big whack of shares. And the publicly traded portion of the pie might be 20%, 30%, 35% of the shares are free trading. Everything else is pretty locked up. So when you see the crazy gyration down in the dirt, whatever, you're not really looking at a company that is being widely traded. Somebody could come along, maybe one of the early shareholders, they just need some money. Oh, you know, I have personal reasons. You know, they dump a whack of shares and the share price just drops off a cliff and you think, oh, what happened? You know, I mean, something blow up or whatever. No, just some guy wanted out. So he had, a couple million shares that he picked up early on, and he decided to dump them all in the course of a week. And he, somehow or another, they couldn't arrange a sale behind the scenes there. And actually that's an opportunity. There are plenty of companies that have had, you know, that sort of deemed dynamic
0: at work. Do you have a chance as an individual mom and pop investor to benefit from any of that? It seems like from what you just said, from what I know that the real beneficiaries in the market are
4: the founding shareholders, the original board members, the institutions, those folks. Well. I'm not going to disagree with you on that. And you know, I mean, the founding shareholders and the original players and what have you, they are the ones who set everything up. It's frustrating to be just Joe shareholder out there, Susie shareholder. You buy in and you just have to trust that something's going to happen in a good way. It's not like you can make it happen. So It gets back to being in the right sector at the right time as opposed to the right company. And this is true either even for big companies in pretty much every industry. If you are in a sector that is going to move and do well. Then if you have even just a you know an, an array of, of stocks, your own sort of personal ETFs, you might say, in that sector, if the sector moves, then you're going to do pretty well. If the sector stays in the doldrums, it's going to be dead money for a while. Although another way of looking at dead money is opportunity to buy more shares for when the sector does move. If you believe that the price of gold will go up because of all sorts of monetary reasons, you know, the dollar in trouble, massive debt, global issues. The world is de-globalizing and breaking up into trading blocks. You've got your China blocker, your China-Russia blocker, you've got your South American blocker. This is not the globalized world of 2019. If you fell asleep four years ago, Rip Van Winkle, and you woke up today, a big whack of this world is very, very different. It's not what it used to be. So if you believe that the world is changing, so you want to protect yourself into whatever is going to come, and nobody really knows what's going to come. I mean, people can make predictions, but nobody really knows. You want to have leverage for when the ball turns, when things turn around. Leverage right now for the individual investor, people who listen to this broadcast, the leverage that you want to have is pick a number, 5%, 7%, 10% of your portfolio in physical gold, for sure, and some of these gold mining plays because if something happens to the dollar, and let's say something happens to the dollar and it's no big deal and the dollar stays the dollar, the worst that happens is you got some gold or you have some silver or you have mining stocks that really haven't delivered. If something bad happens to the dollar, dollar down, gold up, silver up, whatever, you can leverage yourself into that. You've protected your wealth. If something really bad happens to the dollar, use your imagination. Just some huge market crash, you know, we wake up one morning and Saudi Arabia says, ah, okay, no more petrodollars. We're not going to do this. Anymore. We've had enough of this. And they've almost said that at this point. I mean, they've said we're going we're gonna to sell oil for yuan or we're going to sell oil in other countries in their own local currencies. We'll just make our own deals. If something really bad happens to the dollar, that gold that you have or the gold mining shares that you have, that'll be your leverage into whatever the next currency is after the dollar. After the dollar sort of runs through the blender there. So it's your leverage into whatever happens next. You know, sure, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't own other kinds of assets, real estate life insurance different parts of the market, and lots of things to invest in in the stock market. It's not just the mines and minerals stock market. In fact, mines and minerals per the stock market is less than 1% of the total market cap of the stock market. You can buy all the gold miners market, a fraction of a percent of the market cap of everything.
0: Gold has always been sort of a fear story, except for maybe 20 years ago when everybody was talking about the expansion, the economic uplift of India and Russia and China. Back then, that wasn't a fear story. It was a growth story. That drove the space. Then it became a fear story with the breakup of the EU and then China and Russia collaborating together to take down the dollar with with a ruble and a yuan. And those fear stories, you can only cry wolf so many times. And I'm hesitant to say that gold is a great hedge against the collapse of the dollar because what else is going to happen if and when the dollar collapses, which it has never done? With all that talk, it has is, is never done that. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I'm just wondering how long can we keep touting that story? And I know for a fact because I was. Talking to a few people yesterday, won't mention their names, you know them, that have left gold and moved into critical metals and critical minerals. That's what they've done with their career.
4: I, too, you know, and we're talking about gold. But I cover critical metals as well, I assure you. The thing about gold is that it's been around a long time. When you say that the dollar has never failed. Well, okay. Pick a number, from 1789, well, 1792, when the first Currency Act was initiated, the dollar was an ounce of silver. In the early 1800s, there was hardly any gold in the United States at all. I mean, North Carolina was the first, you know, sort of gold rush in the 1830s. It's constantly failing is what you're going to say, right? Well, the dollar has always been backed by some silver, gold, whatever. 1933, Franklin Roosevelt seized the gold, but they still, in a sense, backed the dollar with gold. Bretton Woods backed the dollar with gold. Richard Nixon closed the gold windows in 1971. I wasn't there, but I was around. I watched it on television that night at Sunday night. And it's been a petrodollar ever since. So it's easy to say, well, the dollar has never failed. No, it hasn't. But it's set up. Right now, it's in the riskiest position it's ever been in 230 years, in my view, since 1792. The dollar is as risky as it's been since the government was broke. And we had the whiskey rebellion, you know, in Western Pennsylvania when they wanted to tax people's stills. Does it mean that the dollar is going to fail? I hope not, because, you know, we all live in this world and if the dollar fails, we'll have bigger problems than just what do I do with the gold coins in my safe deposit box down at the bank or whatever. The gold, the silver need to be part of a prudent investor. Now, in terms of like where we Going, or going forward. I mean, yeah, you know, copper, you know, I mean, this is elemental copper right out of the ground in the Keweenaw Peninsula of northern Michigan. You don't mine this stuff anymore. I mean, they mined this in the 1840s, 50s, 60s. I can still find it in an occasional spot up there. But this is not the world of copper. This is people aren't mining 98% copper grades anymore. They're mining, and you saw this when we were up in Hugo. They're looking at fractions of a percent of grade for copper. You're looking at copper that's one 300th the grade of what I'm holding in my hand, you know. That's what people are mining. That's just copper. You know, we can do the same thing. I can hold up a sample of, you know, nickel ore. We get zinc ore, rare earth minerals. The things that make electronics work, tin, indium, gallium for just the solder alone. That's what's going on. Lithium, the electric vehicle move. When you look at what's the supply of lithium in the next eight years, this is the curve. What's the demand? Well, it's going to be like that. And so there's this big, huge wedge of unsatisfied supply, which means that if you're in the lithium space in the next eight or 10 years, you're going to do very well. Lithium is more than the next Bitcoin, that's for sure. So I was sitting, speaking of lithium, I was sitting at
0: a dinner last night in Santa Monica with Robert Mintak, the CEO of Standard Lithium. Have you met him? I know who he is. I I, I, I haven't met him. So they have a deal with Lanza's, can't remember the name of the German company, in Arkansas. They just happen to have lithium brine there. I don't know the amount, but it's insane. It's a byproduct of what Langus is doing over there. And they've put up a pilot plant and they're going to go into production at some point. That is now, I think, a $16 stock where it was a penny stock when I first started covering the company probably five or six years ago. And before that, he was with Pure Energy, which is an operation out in the semi-troublesome Clayton Valley where water has been an issue and a few other things. So when I see all these lithium plays out there, junior stocks, whatever they are, I have to shake my head at them because really you've got to follow a company that has a path to production and has off-take deals and is actually doing it. And that's probably
4: the story for any of these resource companies in the sector, isn't it? Absolutely. The days of the company just saying, we have a deposit up in the mountains someplace, or you, know, you can still see a good story every now and then, you know, we have some good rocks up in the mountains, a good rocks up in the mountains story. But in terms of what you want to see in a company that is actually going to go places, you want to see a company that thinks more downstream. The minerals, the ore grade, the mining side, that is what it is. That's sort of the sine qua non. I mean, you want you do want to have a deposit. It's the processing, and that's a whole other side of it. And again, it gets into stock picking. You mentioned a couple of years ago, I wrote up a company called Piedmont Lithium. Piedmont really? in North Carolina. There is an entire pegmatite zone in the Western Carolinas going up in the Appalachian, 300 million-year-old metamorphic rock full of pegmatites and they're full of spodumene. So this is the really good lithium. Albemarle mined it in World War II and then a little bit afterwards. They're still around, but the mining just sort of went away. A lot of what this area turned into was housing developments, bike trails, tennis courts, public parks, things like that. And then along came Piedmont Lithium and they started collecting the claims and everything. I wrote it up when it was in a 5 or $6 stock. We sold, we sold it in about 35 or 40 Not a bad move. People said, why did you sell it? And I said, well, know, yeah, I, I just have this feeling. We sold it not too long before the whole North Carolina environmental movement came down on these guys with both feet. You can't mind this is our beautiful bike path. This is our beautiful tennis course. It might be a beautiful geologic deposit, but for all sorts of sociology reasons, people don't want to hear the magic musical sound of bulldozers in the morning. They don't love the smell of diesel smoke in the morning, I guess. It's hard. Again, you need to pick the company and pick what it is you want to do. It takes more than just sort of picking up a rock and saying, oh, a nice or great. You got to figure out where does this go? You have to think holistically about the whole process from the rock in your hand all the way to where's it going to wind up? It's a difficult sector in that regard, especially when you're competing against other investment opportunities where, you know, somebody comes up with some great app for an iPhone and they become a billion-dollar company overnight. You came up with a better way to order pizzas and now you're a billionaire. Why don't you and I exist in that space?
0: Is it because of our age or is it because of our interest in rocks? I mean, why don't we live in that space? It seems like
4: it could be more lucrative than mining. It probably Probably is. It's just a personality thing, I suppose. It takes just a higher level of thinking to be able to do what you and I do. If what you and I did was easy, anybody could do
0: it. The only thing I know how to do, it seems, I've tried stuff and out into other sectors, and no, it's not working. And plus, the people involved in mining, as you know, they're all gamblers. We have a lot of friends in the mining space. They're just fun people, exciting, risk-takers, and, risk takers and it, it taking the risk and not completely
4: losing all of it <laughs> like you would at a casino. Well, another angle to it, though, it's a cultural issue. It has to do with American culture, Western culture in general, but certainly U.S. culture. Americans have gotten away from the idea of what our fundamental resources. Are. I mean, life is easy in America. You know, you flip the switch and the lights come on there Very few people ever think when they flip the switch, they never think about the copper in the wall. They never think about the transformer on the telephone pole. They never think about the wires back to the power plant, the coal, the railroad, that hauled the coal, the natural gas, the pipeline, the drill rig that drilled the gas. They don't think about that. They just think, oh, good. Now, I flipped the switch, my lights went on. You look at another culture, you look at China. Hello. Everywhere you go in the world, if you go to the right places, you're going to see Chinese geologists and Chinese business people out there trying to make every deal they can. I was just talking with somebody the other day, was spending time in Argentina. And he said that there's a lot of mining plays up and down in Argentina, lots of Greek deposit in Argentina in so many ways, so many mines, metals, you name it. And there's Chinese everywhere. And this guy was saying, yeah, I, I walk into a restaurant and people are sitting around talking about, oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so. He found this deposit up in the hill. And next thing you know, a couple of Chinese guys walk up, oh, what, do you, what are you guys talking about? And they want to find out everything. It is a national program of China to go around the world, find the materials, the minerals, the resources, the energy whatever, that they need to run their country for the next hundred years and lock it up. We worry about Chinese balloons flying over America taking pictures. Well, okay, yeah, that's something to worry about, but you need to worry about Chinese geologists walking over seven out of seven continents in this world, too, literally picking up the rocks, trying to figure out what they should buy next. They'll buy it, and then in come the financier. They'll buy it. They'll finance the project. All they care about is that we mine it, we refine it, we put it on a truck down to a boat when the boat goes to China.
0: China has, in my opinion, shed the fundamental of communism, with the exception of control over the population, and embrace capitalism. And they're not turning back. And I
4: think if this were a Sputnik sort of competition, they're winning. They have a strategy and they are implementing it. And yes, in the sense that call it winning, they have a strategy and they're carrying it out. That is a well-thought-out strategy of resource resource availability for a very big country that needs a lot of energy, a lot of minerals and materials, a lot of food, and they do what they need to do. They go to the Democratic Republic of Congo. They operate mines in hellacious conditions. I mean, the child mining and all that sort of thing. We might not want to buy that cobalt. They'll buy it. That's okay. We don't want to buy that columbium, tantalum or that coltan. That's okay. They'll buy it. You see it everywhere. I've personally seen it everywhere. I saw it in Chinese geologists and Chinese engineers engineers. engineers in South Africa and Namibia, I saw it in Madagascar, Eritrea, countries that I've visited in my travels. You see it in Canada where the Chinese have actually bought up entire projects. They mine it and refine it to the point that they can efficiently put it on a truck and efficiently put it on a ship and then seal it back to China. And so, yeah, this is where they're coming from. This is what their politicians think about when I say politicians. It's not like they run for election, like our politicians. Their politicians sort of work their way up through the party and they're vetted in every step. Do you think the right way? Are you our kind of people, asks the Chinese Communist Party. Well, their kind of people are different than our kind of people, that's for sure. But they have a strategy and they're carrying it out and we see it. Whereas in the United States, what is our strategy? Oh, we want to decarbonize. All right, I'll listen to you. And we want to re-electrify. We want to rebuild the grid. Okay, I'll listen to you on that. And we need lots of materials to do this with. We need a lot of copper and a lot of aluminum and a lot of nickel. Just go down to the the periodic table, you know, all those metals in the middle. We need all that stuff. Okay, great, great. Okay, so how are we going to implement that? Well, let's see, you know, I mean, let's throw a couple of stink bombs in here. Well, the EPA just killed the pebble mine in Alaska. Corps of Engineers was working on killing the Ambler mine in Alaska. Yes, the EPA killed the Antivagasto copper nickel project in northern Minnesota. Well, okay, guys, we want to electrify the country, but what are we going to electrify it? Uh, we'll buy our copper somewhere. Okay, like where? Humor me. Where are we going to get it? We're competing against China that owns mines in Peru, which I've seen, and brings it down the Andes in rail cars, which I've seen. I've actually ridden on that railroad from Port of Callao through Lima, all the way up to 15,000 feet in the Andes, where there's a Chinese owned copper mine, copper, zinc, and a whole bunch of other stuff. They load these big rail cars and they just switch back them down the Andes to the port, put them on a ship back to China. So this is where they're coming from. In the U.S., we want cruise ships to pull into our ports and tourists to come out take tourists In China, they want ships full of copper ore, tankers full of oil and LNG, you know, that's what they want pulling into airports. I think I see some of them out there in the Pacific Ocean right now. I'm going to label you for the moment,
0: even if you don't consider yourself one, I'm going to make you wear the hat of a futurist. Where do you think we're headed?
4: Where are we headed? Who was it? Casey Stengel says, it's always difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Well, first of all, I think we really need to be sanguine about the prospects of walking into some sort of a shooting war in Europe and Asia. The shooting war is already happening in Europe. It's not Americans pulling the trigger, they say. I and mean, I'm sure there are a few on the ground there, but the West, NATO, and the U.S. has just stoked that war in Ukraine. And it's almost like the West is willing to fight Russia to the last drop of Ukrainian blood. And there are a lot of issues between Ukraine and Russia. I get it, but Russia's big. Russia's a big industrial power. People think, oh, look at a gas station, a nuclear weapon. Well, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being a gas station because you actually have to have some technical competency to be uh, among the three largest oil producers in the world, it takes technical competence. And nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons are a pretty significant achievement too, you know? I mean, hello, you need a lot of physicists and mathematicians and metallurgists and engineers, you know, to do that. Russia produces more tanks in one year than the whole West combined. They produce more combat aircraft than the whole West combined. They produce three times as many missiles as the whole West combined. So, You can think what you want about Russia, but in terms of an industrial war, they're not going to lose. Feel whatever you want about Ukraine. You Feel bad about it. Feel bad about seeing hundreds of thousands of people killed. Yes. But I think that the West is way, way, way too cavalier about stoking that fire because there were a lot of off ramps that would have kept us from going to that spot. And that's just Europe. And then we talk about Asia. Taiwan, China, we're going to have a war with China. I can't tell you how many times I've heard U.S. politicians and even, you know, U.S. senior military people say, you know, the next war is going to be with China. It's going to be in 2025, 27, 28, by 2003. If you really believe that strategically, you'd better start doing something about it, you know, because we don't have a shipbuilding industry that builds enough ships. We don't have an airplane industry that builds enough airplanes. We don't have enough munitions out in the theater to fight a war with. This is public information. This is what they tell you every time. We We war game, a war with China, go through a bunch of different scenarios. Yeah, we win some. Yeah, we tie some. Yeah, we lose some. And all along the way, we take huge, gigantic levels of casualties. We lose a couple of aircraft carriers, a couple of aircraft carriers. Think about that. 5,000 people sinking in the water in a matter of an hour or two. That's a lot of losses and a hurt. If people really want to go there, they better start wrapping their brain around. The U.S. military, it's built for a one and done kind of war. We're going to go across the world. We're going to fight them. It's going to be over. And we're going to come back. Okay, that's not the kind of war that's going to happen. You're going to go across the world. You're going to fight them. You're going to take really bad casualties. And then you're going to turn around and say, We need more reinforcements. Send more stuff. We don't have any more stuff. We got all our ships. You used up all our missiles. We used up all our artillery shells. It'll take us seven years to build more airplanes. So, just on the military side, if the U.S. is not careful, we're going to walk ourselves right into the perrumpial puzzle. That's one futurist scenario. We'll just follow that. It seems like China is probably pleased with the fact that we're sending all these weapons, NATO sending
0: all these weapons
4: to Europe because it's depleting our own supply. Okay. Absolutely. Every 155 millimeter artillery shell that goes to Ukraine, it's one less that's on Guam or one less that's on some other island or one less that's in Australia. And then the other thing is that when you fight somebody over a period of time, they watch you, they have a brain, they think, they learn. They learn what you're doing. That was the great downfall in our endless Middle Eastern wars of the last 20 years. You go to Iraq and you stay there for year after year for year. You go to Afghanistan, you stay there for year after year after year. Eventually, even the dimmest of dim bulbs figure out ways to fight you. And I assure you that The Chinese are smart and the Russians are smart and so they watch American surveillance, they watch our electronic warfare, they watch our satellites, they capture specimens of weaponry and they suck those signals out of the sky. They really study and get into the whole philosophy of how we're fighting. And so there'll be a lot fewer surprises for them if or when the other balloon goes up. That's an an old military expression, when the balloon goes up. I know it takes a different meaning in light of recent developments with balloons. I feel like
0: this is 1939 all over again, just different fundamentals in play, but Very similar. We're just sort
4: of twiddling our thumbs, having a good time, enjoying the weather, and then we're really in a war right now. Yeah, it's not hard to make that argument. No artillery shells or no bombs are landing on U.S. soil right now. But really, I mean, Chinese balloon, I mean, that was a brazen episode. Yeah, we're going to send a balloon over there for a weather balloon. It had the most interesting track. This weather balloon flew over Fairbanks, Alaska, which is home of Fort Wainwright, which is where about the only anti-ballistic missile system is in North America. It came down through Canada, through NORAD country, which they didn't do anything. U.S.-Canadian joint efforts. We did nothing. It flew over the missile base in Montana. Okay, then it flew over southeast Wyoming, Francis Warren Air Base, missile base. Flew over a few other things. It flew over Whiteman Air Force Base in Madura, which is where the B-2 bombers hang out. Flew over Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, which is where Transcom is, the cargo planes, and that made its way across the Appalachians. It actually didn't, it was not too far from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where the nuclear facility is where we make really special stuff. It's called Y-12 was the name of the, of the facility. I've actually visited very interesting place. Can't talk about it. And... <laughs> It's that interesting that you can't talk about. And then I guess the winds weren't quite right. They missed Kings Bay, Georgia, which is a Trident submarine base. They were a little bit north of Kings Bay. But what an interesting weather balloon! But it did catch the attention of the American people. I mean, it is a teachable moment. That the world is far, far, far more dangerous to U.S. interests. I think, the general public.
0: I can see we're going to have to do a follow-up interview very, very soon because there's a lot of things we haven't covered, it's really kind of impossible to cover everything in this particular hour. But I want to ask you, before we wrap it up, a week and a half ago, we were probably, maybe two weeks ago, we were looking at gold over 1950 or somewhere, and it was heading toward 2000, and I thought it would continue. Many people did. Maybe you did. I'm not sure. And I thought, well, the, the only thing that could take out this particular momentum was a black swan event, something of which you just spoke about, whether it be a war event or, God forbid, an earthquake like what happened in Turkey over here in California. I'm not saying that's happening. It could happen at any time, but could a black swan event just absolutely kill the market like what happened in 2001?
4: Yeah, well, I would say yes. I would say yes. I mean, like a couple of weeks ago, gold was up and it seemed like it was going even further up. And Mm -hmm. people were talking 2,100 gold, 2,500, 3,000. But then out came, you know, this jobs report. The (laughs) American economy is growing and creating jobs. Except if you read about paragraph 19 in the jobs report, you start to see that a lot of these jobs were statistical adjustments. So they're not like real jobs. They're like statistical jobs. And then when you look at the guts of the job, what kind of jobs are being created? Hospitality and leisure hotel maids, okay, ticket taker at the amusement park, that kind of stuff. These are jobs that you build a world-beating economy out of. These are $10, 12 15 an hour jobs that, in the proverbial words of the economic left, I mean, these are jobs that you don't feed a family with. These aren't career jobs. But yes, gold dropped $100 in day and a half, two days, whatever, took the edge off. But I think that something could come along that, again, harms the dollar, harms the credibility of U.S. power, harms that perception of U.S., competency, capabilities, what have you, and it would just be off to the races again. You hope not. You don't want to see it because, I mean, hey, I live here, too. You know, I don't want to pay $20 for a gallon of gas. I don't want to pay $30 for a gallon of milk. One of the great things about the American economy is that it is self-correcting. When the price of lumber goes up, well, and, you know, people, cut more trees and we open more sawmills and the price of lumber comes down and we'll see how economically it works out. We've been very lucky, been very lucky. It's important to worry in a good way. Don't worry yourself sick. Worry in the sense that it's not as good as everybody's telling you. And maybe it's not as bad as people are saying either, but you've got to steer your course there. You want to protect yourself, protect your family, your wealth, guard yourself. One of the best investments anybody can make is to invest in themselves be healthy, have your family be healthy and learn things. If you aren't learning something every day, you really are doing something wrong because it is so easy. They've made it so easy to learn really interesting things, whether it's reading online news or watching YouTube videos or whatever. It's so easy to invest in yourself these days. That's probably the most important thing anybody can do. The retail level. Yeah, we can vote. Yeah, once every two years you're allowed to vote and then somebody counts the votes and surprise, the guy wins who they wanted to win. you. Know? Well, Byron King, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. How do people find you?
5: I am working with
4: a group called Paradigm Press. They're in Baltimore. Yeah. And I write for a newsletter called Lifetime Income Report and another one called Jim Rickards Strategic Intelligence. Jim Rickards, R I C K R D S. A lot of your listeners may have heard of Jim Rickards. He's written about a half dozen. New York Times bestseller, books on all sorts of things, Currency Wars, The End of Money, a New Case for Gold. I write with him through Paradigm Press, so it's not that hard to find us. Happy to have
0: people take a look. Well, Byron, it's been great chatting with you again today, my friend. Good to see you again, and I'd like to pick this up again because there's a lot we haven't covered here, and there's a lot to cover. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Very well, thank you. It's good to be with you. I've been chatting with Byron King. This is the Ellis Martin Report. Subscribe by going to ellis.gold. I'm Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp., a public mineral exploration company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the US on the OTC QB market under the symbol ORRCF. Oroco is focused on the development of a large copper deposit in the Santo Tomas project in coastal Northwest Mexico. Santo Tomas hosts a multi-billion pound copper resource defined by historical drilling and currently being confirmed by ongoing exploration drilling by Iroco. Copper mineralization at Santo Tomas is located at surface and therefore potentially amenable to low-cost mining methods. It's very well located with respect to the infrastructure that's essential to a large mining operation, and Mexico is among the world's top mining jurisdictions, with laws and trade agreements that protect the rights of mining companies. Since commencing exploration and resource definition at Santo Tomas three years ago, Iroco has made a series of rapid advances, and the year ahead is rich with catalysts, such as a formal resource definition and economic evaluation, each of which carries the possibility of a company valuation re-rating. These milestones will be achieved against the backdrop of a positive forecast for the price of copper, possibly to historical highs as a result of dramatic shifts in metals' importance to industrial and consumer markets. Here's Adam to tell us about Oroco and these shifts in copper markets. Adam, welcome back to the program. Nice to visit with you today. Thank you, Ellis. Always good to speak to you. News just released, you've drilled 187.9 meters of 0.58% copper equivalent
5: at Santo Tomas. Now that's a good spread of consistent copper grade. Correct, Ellis. And what makes this news release, this drill result even more significant, it's at the southernmost extreme of the area drilled at Santo Tomas. It is approximately 5 kilometers south of the northernmost drill hole and eight kilometers south of the extent of known mineralization at Santa Tomas. That's almost five miles of nearly continuous mineralization at Santa Tomas that is now drill tested. The other significant thing about that intersection is its grade. Its grade and the style of mineralization suggests to our geologists that the so-called South Zone, which was the subject of that news release, mineralization at the South Zone is the result of not just a single mineralizing event, a hydrothermal event over millions of years that deposited mineralization, but as a result of multiple mineralizing events, giving the South Zone and the newly discovered southern edge of the South Zone the potential for higher grades across greater widths in slightly different styles than the rest of the area. So for a deposit where drilling commenced in the 1970s and has continued up to today, to find new discoveries, new levels of mineralization is very exciting, and it suggests to us that even though we're ending the first phase of drilling at Santa Tomás, we're ending on a high note, the kind of high note in all three zones of Santa Tomás, the south zone, the north zone, and brazilias that has us very, very keen to get drills turning again in a second phase of drilling.
0: So as we used to say in the music industry, this is not just a
5: one-hole or a one-hit wonder, is it? We have, in fact, drilled over 70 holes at Santa Tomas Mass in a program that started a year and a half ago, and all but a very few of those holes have hit mineralization. They've hit mineralization, as I mentioned before, across great distances, five kilometers north to south, at depths up to 700 meters below the surface, and across widths of two or 300 meters. So that's a great deal of tonnage that has been defined by the phase one at Santa Tomás, and drilling at each of the three zones at Santa Tomás, the north zone, the south zone, and Brazilis suggests that additional phase two drilling is warranted as the deposit is open to expansion at all three of those zones. So what was the goal in the first phase here, Adam? The goal of the first phase of drilling was not to be exhaustive in terms of the exploration and development of a resource at Santa Tomas, but simply to meet certain thresholds. In this case, the threshold that we sought was the recreation, repetition, if you will, of historical drilling at Santa Tomas that demonstrated nearly a 1 billion ton resource capable of supporting a mine operating at a very high level, with revenues at today's copper prices over a billion dollars a year and do so for greater than 20 years. That was the historically defined resource that we were seeking to confirm and expand upon in phase one drilling. We feel that when we conduct a preliminary economic assessment of a mining activity, it's ended to mass a study that talks about capital costs and revenues and has a discounted future cash flow number called a net present value that sets the value for an asset like this. We felt that defining two decades of mine life was an important threshold. We feel that this phase of drilling has largely confirmed the historical results. We found mineralization exactly where we would expect it to be based on historical drilling and we've drilled and defined new zones of mineralization well outside of those areas that were historically defined. So phase one We feel, and we won't know until the resource estimate is complete later this quarter, but we do feel, and it has the look of a program that has largely met its objectives. Subsequent drilling at Santa Tomas will seek to further refine the portion of the deposit that is included in the economic assessment as we take those economic studies to higher levels, such as a pre-feasibility study, which is a higher level study in which engineers have a higher degree of confidence. But we're not going to resist the allure of continuing to expand Santa Tomás as it appears to be possible in each of the three zones, the South Zone, the North Zone, and Brazilis. And in fact, further north from those holes that we've drilled at Brazilis, across several kilometers of potential mineralization contained on our mineral concessions that take us all the way up to the Barachi deposit, another large copper deposit owned by a Chinese major mining company.
0: In this day and age, I'd like to focus on the impact upon the community in an area like Sinaloa and Mexico, for that matter, with, let's say, a potential minimum of $20 billion worth of revenue over 20 years, that's quite significant. With the jobs in the area, not just for Sinaloa, but for the entire country of Mexico, which really could change the economics of the country itself. It can be an abundant country, and people want to stay there and work,
5: actually. Santa Tomás is contained within an area called La Entrada al Pacífico, the Pacific Gateway. It's a multimodal trade and transport corridor developed jointly by the Mexican and U.S. governments. There's a railway, there's a high pressure gas pipeline, there's a deep water port, a nitrogen fertilizer plant to be fed by that natural gas pipeline is being built. It's an area designed for large infrastructure projects and large industrial projects such as Santa Tomas. It would be among the biggest taxpayers in the state and indeed among the biggest taxpayers in the country. So yes, it's got the potential to change for the better, the immediate area, which is a ranching and mining district, but also has broad and positive implications for the state and the country in general. We're very aware of that fact. We have started working with the community many, many years ago. In fact, we started working with the community years before we commenced exploration at Santa Tomás. We're aware of the positive transformation that a mine like Santa Tomás can bring to that region. We're very proud of the work that we do there, and we're very hopeful that one day, as Santa Tomás is developed, it will have a very positive impact on the surrounding area.
0: Adam, we've certainly had a great deal of response from our last interview. You absolutely covered the reason for copper and what you're doing there in Mexico, and I'm quite proud to have you as a sponsor of this particular radio program and
5: podcast. What have we got coming in the next few months that we can sort of tease? Being able to follow up on our first interview with the type of news that we issued this week, I think it was very fortunate. First, we were able to introduce Santa Tomas to your listeners, and very quickly follow up with terrific news of the expansion of mineralization at Santa Tomas. In the coming months, the first phase of drilling will be complete. That data will be compiled into a mineral resource estimate, and that mineral resource estimate will be combined with additional information like metallurgy and mine design, infrastructure costs, etc., into a preliminary economic assessment. Those two studies will define Santa Tomas in compliant terms, compliant under current mineral reporting standards. And those compliant studies will really establish Santa Tomas for the benefit of investors who want to be able to value the project.
0: Adam, it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program and pay attention, there's more coming. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with Adam Smith, co-founder and vice president of business development for Oroco Resource Corp. Oroco trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO and in the U.S. on the OTCQB market under the ticker symbol ORRCF. Go to the company's website, OrocoResourceCorp.com. For Adam Smith and Oroco Resource Corp., I'm Ellis Martin.
6: Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free ellismartinreport.com
0: I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SYH and in the U.S. on the OTC QB as SYHBF. Sky Harbor is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada. The company has just secured an option to acquire an initial 51% and up to 100% of the Russell Lake Uranium Project from Rio Tinto in the Athabasca. This brings the total land package of Sky Harbor resources in the Athabasca Basin to over 450,000 hectares or 4,500 square kilometers consisting of a total of 15 properties with some of the most high-grade uranium targets in the world. Jordan, welcome back to the program. It's great to visit with you here in Vancouver. It's great to see you. Thanks for hosting and looking
7: forward to catching up.
0: Well, one of the things I'm really interested in being a shareholder of Sky Harbor is news like you have now here with Russell Lake. This is a potentially gigantic project. We don't know that for a fact now, but I use the word potentially. Let's go into what's coming along with the 10,000 meter drill
7: campaign at Russell Lake. So we announced just a few days ago, our inaugural 10,000 meter drill program at Russell Lake, as we've discussed in previous interviews, Russell Lake is an advanced stage exploration asset in very, very prime location, the Eastern side of the Athabasca basin, a deal that we struck with Rio Tinto last year, which is allowing us to earn up to potentially 100% of the project through staged earn in several phases. This initial 51% earn in we can complete with several million dollars of exploration expenditures over the next few years. We're hoping we can complete that in relatively short order. This is the first major program that we'll be carrying out at the project. 10,000 meters, it's our largest individual drill program that we've ever carried out. As a company, we can look to expand that and we'll likely look to add meters later in the year as this program will take us right through to late spring, early summer. So this will provide lots of news flow for the company over the next six months or so. We're planning 18 to 20 drill holes. We're gonna have several phases of drilling starting with this initial three to 4,000 meters of drilling. We'll have a couple of breaks in between these phases just to allow us to catch up with the assays and the news flow. This is the project, as we've discussed again, uh, it's very, very prospective geologically. It's basically all of the ground between the MacArthur River Mine Project to the north, the largest, richest uranium deposit in the world, the Key Lake Mill to the south, which is one of only two operating uranium mills in the Athabasca Basin. We have our co-flagship project, Moore Lake, adjacent to the east, and then Denison's flagship Wheeler River Project, hosted the Phoenix Deposit, which is Development project is adjacent to the west. We basically, with Russell, encircle the Wheeler River claims to the north to the east of the claims, and to the south. Uh, As you know, Denison is a large corporate and strategic shareholder of ours. Dave Cates, our president and CEO, is on our board. So we have a very close working relationship and partnership with Denison. Russell Lake has had a fair bit of historical drilling and work, but most of this drilling was exploratory in nature, widely spaced drill fences, three, four, 500 meters apart. So previous operators did not go in and tighten this up and do systematic programs to vector in on what could be high-grade uranium discoveries and deposits at the project. So that's what we're doing now with this initial phase of drilling. We're going to go back into a few target areas, in particular an area called the Grayling Zone, where it's right off the road. It's near the exploration camp that we're staging out of there. There's power lines that run up along the road, so we've got the infrastructure. This Grayling Zone's nearby that infrastructure, and we're going to go in and test in between some of these widely spaced drill fences in some of those drill fences and drill holes are host to uranium mineralization and some in particular have multi-percent higher grade uranium over skinny width. So we believe that there are potentially several discoveries that could be made. We want to go in, we want to unlock that value through this drilling and we believe we can deliver a new high-grade discovery at the project this year. One of the reasons this project hasn't been developed previously, I'm assuming, is because the market just wasn't there, and it is now really, isn't it? Yeah, there's a long history to the project. As I said, there's been a fair bit of historical exploration, but because it's such a big property, you got to remember it's over 73,000 hectares. It's prime real estate, but really a lot of the uh, historical exploration was reconnaissance work, was exploratory or wildcat drilling. And so it's now at a stage where it's primed for a new discovery to be made. A lot of that foundation or base has been placed with the previous exploration, we're now able to go in on a relatively turnkey project and again, hopefully deliver a new discovery for our shareholders. The previous operators being Rio and Hathor and some previous operators even before Hathor, again, have done a lot of the heavy lifting, if you will, to get the project to where it is. We're confident that we can go in with some new geological modeling, some new thinking and be successful there. We've also hired a geological consulting group called consulting and what they're doing for us and they're doing a fantastic job thus far is they're basically going back and aggregating and compiling all of the historical geological and geophysical data they're stitching it all together they're re-examining it from a new modern lens and they're gonna then prioritize help prioritize regional targets at the project so that going forward we are drilling our best target so we're starting off with the obvious targets which are the targets in between mineralized drill fences, but hundreds of meters apart. We've had success at Moore Lake, our co-flagship project just to the east using this same strategy. And going forward, there's going to be a number of other high priority drill targets that we will drill test with the help of Condor Consulting. Everyone knows that the majors like to have juniors like yourself do a lot of the heavy lifting. They
0: do this globally. Rio Tinto does it. Arano does it. Arano Canada does it. Arano France does it. Denison, Cameco, all the majors do that. I think it says a lot that you have partnerships with three of the majors like Arano, Denison, and now Rio Tinto. Let's talk about
7: some of your junior partnerships here. There's quite a few. Absolutely. So as you know, we have this dual prong strategy. We are focused on making discoveries and advancing our primary projects of Russell Lake, which we just covered, as well as our 100% owned Moore Lake project, which we are planning to drill at some point this year. The benefit of having Russell Lake in our portfolio now and the exploration camp there, the road, the power lines, is that we can actually access Moore Lake and the high-grade Maverick corridor much easier. So we can move the drill rig back and forth between Russell and Moore. So you will see additional drilling at Moore Lake as we continue to have success delineating high-grade zones of uranium there at the Maverick corridor. And in particular, in these underlying basement rocks. But getting over to the second part of the business, which is the prospect generator business that we've built up, and it's grown quite a bit in the last several years. As you know, we have our two joint venture partners over on the west side in Arano at Preston and at the East Preston project. Azencourt Energy is now the majority holder of that project. They're about to embark on one of their largest drill programs, 6,000 meters, which will start shortly. So we're very excited to have them continue advancing and working on that project and we now have five active earn in option partners and a couple of new partners which we discussed last year but just to cover off those five we have asx listed valor resources earning in at our hook lake project expecting some more exploration and work from them this year we have madero mining at our yurchison project they just did some initial exploration and field work last year so we're expecting that they'll be ramping up the exploration and potential drill programs at the yurchison project this year in 2023 we have base In Uranium, which has been actively and quite quickly advancing the Man Lake project as they're earning in at that property. Again, much like Madero at Yurchison, we're expecting Basin to ramp up their exploration efforts this year as well in 2023. And then more recently, in some very exciting news over the last several months, are two new option partners that we've brought in. Yellow Rocks, which is a private Australian company that will be seeking a listing here on the ASX, we've optioned them two of our projects, the Wally and Usam projects on the northeastern part of the basin. So we're just putting together initial plans for initial exploration and work at those properties. And then the biggest option agreement that we've signed, the biggest deal to date, as far as our prospect generator business is concerned, is a deal that just received conditional approval from the exchange. It's a deal that we struck with a company called Tisdale Energy at our South Falcon East project. And this earn an option agreement uh, entails, Tisdale spending $10.5 million in exploration expenditures over a five year period and paying Sky Harbor $11.6 million in cash in stock over that same five year period to earn up to a 75% interest. Now, this is also an advanced stage exploration property that we have. It has a small resource, it has a number of prospective targets. We are expecting that they will be drilling at some point this year at the project, and a fairly significant program is what we're expecting. So, when you couple all of these partner funded programs with our initial 10,000 meters of drilling at Russell. You're looking at uh, between 30 to 40,000 meters of drilling here between us and our partner companies over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. This is a significant uh, combined drilling campaign, though certainly the largest ever uh, carried out by Sky Harbor and its partner companies. And that will provide uh, for a significant amount of news flow uh, and potential catalysts over the next year to year and a half.
0: With over 400,000 hectares in the Athabasca, does that make you the largest junior in the area operating under this dual prong
7: model that you have? Yeah, we are, by acreage, by land holding, one of the largest mineral claim holders in northern Saskatchewan. We have over 460,000 hectares or approximately 1.2 million acres of, of mineral claims. It's 18 projects now that we have. Um, so there's the two primary projects or co-flagship projects in Russell. Russell and Moore Lake, and then the 16 other projects that uh, we would group into our prospect generator business. But it's an exciting time um, for uranium companies, it's certainly an exciting time for shareholders of Sky Harbor with the drilling and the news flow that we'll have coming up here and we're expecting a, a great year ahead. I think there's two things that are kind of driving the market and specifically
0: your market right now. One of them is the critical minerals initiative that has been put into place by the Biden administration And then going down south to Australia, I believe you have two partners already from Australia. They're being very, very aggressive in the energy
7: sector and looking for projects and advancing projects in North America. Yeah, well, starting with the critical metal element to this, it's not just in the US, in fact, in Canada. And we've raised some money in the last year using basically a flow through tax credit that is allocated to projects that host critical metals, including uranium projects. So we're seeing in North America governments in canada and the u.s really pushing for the development of these critical metal projects including uranium projects so that's very exciting and i think we'll continue to see that momentum carry through is again nuclear is the only source of emissions-free baseload affordable scalable reliable electricity generation we're seeing the demand growing at over three percent a year for uranium for the fuel for these nuclear power plants yet the supply side as we've discussed at length in the past the supply side has been decreasing or shrinking over the last five and a half, six years. We simply aren't producing enough uranium to meet this growing demand. We're depleting secondary supplies and inventories. And now with the market bifurcating East versus West, I think we're going to see in particular, the prices paid for North American, Australian, and call it Western pounds of uranium. We're going to see that price creep up. In fact, we're already seeing the Department of Energy paying 60 to $70 a pound for the uranium strategic reserve that the US is building. So it's, an exciting time for, in particular, North American uranium companies. To answer the second part of the question, with Australian capital and Australian companies coming into the base, and yes, we have now two partners that are Australian companies. We've seen a lot of interest in Australia, both from the corporate side of things, as well as the capital market side for uranium projects in the Athabasca Basin. So it's good to see that there's a lot of interest in Australia. It's a big mining country, and uh, I think it's also a, a good stamp of approval for the Athabasca Basin that you're seeing that capital flow into companies that are active in the basin.
0: With all that you have going and you you have a lot of projects right now, I
7: would say that your share structure represents as minimal amount of dilution as possible. Yeah, I mean, that's a Part of the reason we have been growing this prospect generator business is that it allows us to bring in some additional capital through cash and stock in these partner companies to pay for the exploration, uh, help pay for some of the exploration at our core projects. In fact, right now we are expecting to receive, assuming that these companies all complete their earnings, between two to three million dollars a year over the next several years from these various option partner companies, two to three million in cash and stock. So it's a great way to. Help help keep that equity dilution down. Obviously, we do raise money though to go out and drill and explore at our main projects, but we have 148 million shares issued in outstanding. We're trading between a 60 to $70 million market cap. I've been continuously purchasing shares in the open market as have some other insiders in directors and management. I think the value proposition is as strong as it's ever been for the company given what we have and given that the prices of all of these companies shot up a year ago and obviously settled back in and pulled back with the broader market, Uh, but we're starting to see things moving in the right direction again. And like I said, I think this is going to be a breakout year for the uranium price and the timing for us is great given that this is likely going to be our busiest year in terms of news flow.
0: Sky Harbor Resources trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SYH and on the OTCQX as SYHBF. Jordan Trimble, President and CEO at Thank you. It's always great to see you in person. I appreciate you joining me today in the program. Likewise, and thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, the president and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and the U.S. on the OTCQB as SYHBF. I'm Ellis Martin.
6: You may assume that Ellis Martin is a shareholder on any of the companies that sponsor the Ellis Martin Report, which means he has a vested interest potentially in them.
0: I'm Ellis Martin join me now for a conversation with Claudia Tornquist, President and CEO of Kodiak Copper Corporation, trading as KDK on the TSX Venture Exchange, KDKCF in the U.S., and 5DD1 in Frankfurt. Claudia, it's great to actually sit here across the table from you in this beautiful boardroom you have at your facilities here in Vancouver. It's been a long time since I've been here. Visiting with a lot of my friends, I consider you one of my, one of my best friends here in Vancouver. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs>
6: That's nice to hear. (laughs) I know.
0: This is a fantastic mining town. Most people don't know unless they're really focused on the mining industry. And we're reaching out to more generalists than we ever had before that Canada, Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary, it's a mining country, period. That's what you people do. And I'm putting air quotes around you people because it's truly the business of Vancouver, the business of Canada. And right now, there's a lot of focus on critical metals, critical minerals, the electrification of the world, and copper is more important than it ever used to be. And I just wanted to ask you how excited you are about it. And did you know when you were growing up in Germany and then becoming a resident of Canada that you're going to be so strongly involved in the industry with such a powerful group? <laughs>
6: That's a a long and complicated question. Let me start with the end. When I started out as an engineer in Germany, I never thought I would land in the resources industry. I started in the automotive industry and got into resources really by coincidence. One of these turns life takes and that was now more than 20 years ago. And I've never looked back and very much enjoy the industry. And yeah, as you said, in Canada, in particular Vancouver, Resources are very is a very important okay. industry. There's no other city with as many mining companies listed as Vancouver and Toronto, of course, and the stock exchange there. And yeah, just this week at the conference, I think that highlighted what big and what an important industry it is. We had the premier there, the leader of the opposition, all talking about the mining industry and it's important for the country.
0: So everybody's on the same page here, both parties, the opposition and the ruling government about how important. these critical minerals and metals are, especially copper, correct?
6: Well, there's a lot of political will, certainly, and I can see that on the ground as well to make things work. David Eby, the BC premier, spoke about permitting, streamlining permitting, and how important this is to slash red tape and to accelerate the permitting process. And we certainly have experienced that. Our last permit, permit amendment, which we applied for in autumn, we got in two months. And that's very good. can very, very well work with that. And so, yeah, there's definitely a lot um, of political will to make things work. And it's a great place to work in British Columbia.
0: Let's talk about British Columbia since you mentioned it specifically, and that's where we're at. There's a lot of mining activity going on here, a lot of exploration and development, and especially in BC. And you've got a sizable project there. And what are the economics of bringing something into production in this particular environment?
6: That's an important question, and that's something I talk about often when I talk about our MPD project. We are located in southern British Columbia in an established mining district with lots of other mines, exploration projects, etc. around us. And that means uh, we have very low cost for exploration because all the infrastructure is there, and it will also be going forward an important difference maybe because to build an economic mine in a district like the one we are in the middle of a a mining district where you have cheap electricity all generated by hydropower almost all where you have access where you have roads where you have water the costs to build a mine are so much lower and to run a mine and that's a big advantage and that's obviously why we like working here and that'll be a big factor when it comes to building a mine at MPD.
0: Let's talk about the release that came out on the 23rd and the wide area where you have copper and copper equivalent. That's fairly significant to be able to go in there and have consistent grade over substantial amount of meters.
6: Yes. This week, we came out with some more results from the prime zone, which is a parallel porphyry zone, parallel to and very close to the gate zone where we made our initial high-grade discovery. And we've extended the prime zone and drilled it now down to 780 meters and had some nice long intercepts of good grades, grades that compare very well with the grades that are mined in the area. They're not as high as the gate zone. We don't seem to be getting the really high-grade intercepts yet that we see at the gate zone. Maybe need some more work, or maybe it's a, a lower-grade zone, but it's right from surface. And as I said, the grades are still respectable and higher than much of the ore that's mined at the neighboring mines. So we're very happy with the result, and it's certainly very positive development for the project.
0: Well, once again, I want to focus on the point that it's not just the grade that matters, it's the accessibility to the area and the infrastructure in British Columbia is, is some of the best infrastructure in the world. You can have insane grade but not be able to get to it and it's just so expensive to build a mine and that factors into the economics of what it cost to bring ore into production.
6: That's a very good point and that's what as an investor is always very important to look at the entire picture. The grade is one piece of the puzzle, the cost is another and it all has to go together. and yeah bc and southern bc and the area we're in is very low cost because very accessible with lots of infrastructure there and that's a big benefit to us both for our exploration our exploration dollars go a long way and more importantly for later on for the future to build a economic mine
0: Now, the main reason that I became an investor in your company before you became a sponsor of my program, and I've said this before, but I want to repeat it for our new listeners to the program, is because of your team. I met you in Scottsdale on one of our typical uh, conferences and roadshows that everybody attends. And I know Chris Taylor because I've interviewed him a few times with Great Bear and that was a huge, huge success for shareholders. And that's, that's the reason I bought stock in this company.
6: Yeah, Chris is a very important part of the team. He's obviously the founder and chairman and he also leads our technical work. And what many people don't know is that he is actually a porphyry expert. His first couple of years as a geologist, He worked for Imperial Metal, exploring and drilling for porphyry, copper porphyry, in British Columbia, other parts of North America. So that's really his home turf and, yeah, his smarts and his out-of-the-box thinking as a geologist is an important part of, well, Great Bear, our sister company's success, and also Kodiak's success.
0: What can we see coming up in the next six months that we might be able to look forward to?
6: We are very busy at the moment and we'll have more news coming relatively soon. We have more drill results coming and also the results from all our sampling and geophysical work, which at the moment we're working through to define and prioritize this year's targets. It's always a very exciting time of the year when you really sort of look at the whole picture and figure out where to drill this year and, and which targets are the highest priority. So yeah, we'll soon have some more news and lay out for our shareholders, What's on the Cards, this year.
0: Claudia, it's always great to see you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program here in Vancouver. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Claudia Tornquist, president and CEO of Kodiak Copper Corporation, trading as KDK on the TSX Venture Exchange, KDK-CF in the US, and 5DD1 in Frankfurt. Find the complete story on the company's website, kodiakcoppercorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Visit ellismartinreport.com.